0: say hello it does it does taste like a mudslide oh it's so delicious
2: and this coffee you got me at coffee
1: Coffee. (laughs) i'm arleia hey courtney (laughs) hello
2: Hello. we're already talking about the drink it's a hit obviously oh my gosh y'all courtney is amazing
1: bartender courtney you should like try every single drink that she puts on the website every Mm -hmm. single one
2: Thank you. This one is inspired <laughs> by my friend Deb. This is called The Deb. The Deb. Totally loving The Deb. My, my friend since childhood, Deb. She always loves sweet drinks. She's a sweet martini drinker. And we actually finally had our Christmas yesterday (laughs) on January the 30th. We made it before the end of the first month of the new year. So I count that as holiday. So we finally made it. And one of my gifts was Grey Goose uh, holiday set from, you know, the liquor store that has that. So it has these cool little martini glasses in it. Oh, nice. Grey Goose drinker. And so. It came with a recipe on the back for an espresso martini, but that she likes coffee, but she likes it sweet. So I took it and sweetened it up a notch. So, well, you know
1: me, I tend yeah. to like sweet stuff too. So, right up there.
2: Well, we added coffee and then instead of, I don't know what it called for, I think it called for coffee liqueur and espresso, but we did creme uh, de coca, cocoa. So, cocoa flavored Cacao. liqueur. Cacao. Cacao. um and um still wasn't sweet enough so she wanted to add a little irish cream on top so it's almost like a coffee with creamer and then i put shaving and vodka she drinks Mm -hmm. Grey goose i drink stully so this is stully and then who it was randy that mentioned today when i talked about it that oh what would be good is some shaved dark chocolate so i'm sorry i didn't put shaved dark chocolate on the top i mean
1: but that's something that we will do when we're together Mm -hmm. which
0: may be sooner than later Uh because we're getting vaccinated in alabama now
1: so fingers crossed yep oh man i stressed so much about that this week trying to find the vaccine yeah just trying to find like what the fuck they're doing like what's going on where where they they doing the stuff where do i need to be making appointments and why- Don't
2: worry, I'll get you in on the eighth. You know oh, I will. I, my I'll get gosh. you with where I got you. Uh, you. You're legit on the eighth, right? That's the teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, teachers are eligible on the eighth. Yes, of
1: February. but then I just decided to let it go because mm-hmm. I had no control over it, and I'm like, you know what? We've got our system in place. It works. I know I'm going to be
2: okay, but I just want to see. <laughs> Body. We're going to get I know. it. We, I will help you. And the place I've, I've done the same so nice though. and friendly. And when it's, sh-
0: I promise. It is, it's very frustrating because it's, it's a bit of a communication clusterfuck mm-hmm. and none of us expected any better from state administration. So like, you know, I, and for me, it's easier for me to just let it go because I always assume that I'm like last in line. You know, like, since I work from home, I'm not a frontline anything, my kids are able to virtual school, I was like, I got no, no qualifications to be anywhere higher up in line, really. And so I'm like, well, I've just always come to peace with being later so but i think once they get close to that phase i'm gonna feel exactly the same i'm gonna be like okay come on let's go That's why right. aren't you doing this right? appointments?
1: i know like <laughs> come on Alabama, you got to get with the 21st century
2: <laughs> all right. right
1: we've got to do stuff online we're barely Period. in the 20th honey Well,
0: here's what I got to say, too. Now, like, and I don't know how this is in all the southern states, and I I know it's being administered differently everywhere, and different states are doing better, and different states are doing worse, but um, I will say that one of the things I saw this morning, and I will ask everybody who listens to this to really pay attention to this, is that older folks in the 75 and up, and even in the 65 and up range, who are pretty universally in the category of eligible in most places right now. Are really being stymied by the whole internet generation of, you know, this is the way we, and because it's an effective way to administer things, the effective places are going for online setup and on, you know, website registration, all this stuff. But there are a lot of folks in the older generation who don't who just don't do it like that. And if they right. don't have a family member who can walk them through it, that's really a challenge for a lot of people. So if you know anybody, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent or anything like that who you know has had a hard time working this out, get on the phone with them and help them figure it out or do yes. it for them. Cause a lot register of these you can just them. send, yeah, yeah, register for them yeah. and and do it for them. Because a lot of folks just can't, you know, they just don't have those skill sets.
2: And no, sometimes don't they have do. there skill are a lot sets. of folks
0: around here i know right and it's not particularly well
2: set up the one i registered for even though they're really good at what they're doing it was still a very complicated registration process Mm -hmm. that even i mean and i would say i'm above average on my (laughs) tech skills so but you know that's why alabama shouldn't have just put out a phone number right a website Mm -hmm. the people who need to use the website know how to use it will use it Mm -hmm. and then that means the older people can use the telephone number because we're not going to be jamming phone lines we're going to be registering online
0: right it's like i guarantee you we do not want to talk to you if we don't have to i promise don't give me a (laughs) 1-800 number
2: i don't want to call
1: it no when i saw that 1-800 number i was like
2: shit Mm-hmm.
1: What and I know. then and we then it was blocked. Number,
2: Patrice. It was oh, blocked yeah.
0: immediately because of the number of people, the whole state's calling one. Yeah, Patrice number. hacked
2: the
1: system with a. <laughs> I know you had to Google how to make busy numbers read <laughs> right. or whatever. Yeah, I was so impressed. How to spam the numbers, but it's just because I didn't know what was going on. I didn't yeah, know uh-huh. who was supposed to be because they left it so vague. I mean, come on, y'all. We can do better than that
2: yes we're
0: getting better and we we will and all of us
1: and we if things
0: are getting better
1: and we're all going to be
0: patient and we're all going to do our best we're going to help the people around us Mm -hmm. we're all going to get there but Mm -hmm. whatever you do get the damn vaccine get the damn vaccine and keep wearing your mask and keep social distancing in the meantime and afterwards because that's
2: the right thing to do exactly (laughs) we got it until the 13th i'm getting my second one i'm it's going to be on a saturday so that i've heard i may get a little sick but i'm it's worth it i'm going to do it mm-hmm. because the last research i was telling marley earlier of those who've had the vaccines who've contracted covid no one has died mm-hmm. yeah completely so even if you still get it it makes it less. yes mm-hmm. it makes it you know yeah. less intense and yeah it's going to be better soon it's getting there we're already going down a little in some, mm-hmm. some numbers and stuff so All right it'll get better and you know the
0: last time we talked about this on on the previous episode and we were talking about who should run the vaccine administration and we decided oh my God. That- chick-fil-a should be and then we found out that starbucks was being called in to do it and then this week there was a news article on cnn saying that in south carolina a chick-fil-a manager had to take over vaccine distribution management in the south carolina site yes. and they got a traffic jam down to like a 15 minute wait.
1: Yes. <laughs> so- chick-fil-a needs to run that shit not every not every town has a Starbucks. not every town, has to, but
2: a lot of towns in the South have a chick-fil-a. so It oh, should just be part of every uh, county government. like go ahead and get the chick-fil-A district manager in here. So obviously, yeah, set
1: up. those people don't <laughs> eat at chick-fil-a, obviously. or they would know what efficiency looks like well and stuff like this, this is a
0: worldwide pandemic without public private partnerships there is no way that we can make this shit Truth. work and that, that is the exactly. perfect example of a like a private co- corporation bringing its expertise to the public to assist in like a public dissemination yes, of vaccine and good. that's that's what yep. everybody should be doing so exactly. yay props Woo-hoo. to you i still don't eat your hate chicken but i love <laughs> that you're doing that so Hi. awesome
2: it's not overt hate anymore. They've taken the overt hate <laughs> money out now. It may be it's subtle. just like don't hate don't talk,
1: don't what is it? Don't, don't ask, ask don't tell. <laughs> don't ask, chicken. don't tell chicken. Oh, I think god. they stopped funding the anti <laughs> Oh my
0: god, no. I don't think they did, but we can have that argument another time. Yeah, I don't think okay, they okay, did well. Either. They said they did. Are you eating the brownie? I'm going to try this brownie that I made. Okay. It is Tell not everybody a pot about brownie. This
1: brownie. Real quick. Patrice then- was
0: afraid it was a pot brownie because I left it on I her wasn't picnic afraid, table, afraid. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I left it on her picnic table with a note that said, "Do not eat brownie until we start the show." <laughs> and, and I didn't think that that would be taken weird. Now I realized it was very legitimate concern. But um no, I, I'm trying to do like anti-inflammatory gluten-free dessert stuff and I found this recipe for avocado brownies. So I'm like, okay, we're going to try this and see what it is, what it's like. So here we go, this right. first time. Whoa, very fudgy. Well. I put sea salt on top of it. It tastes chocolatey. Texture's a little weird, but. It's very fudgy, weird texture. The texture's it's, a
2: little. But it's more it's cakey little, than I thought it would be. Yeah.
0: It's got it's, a little grainy little bit grainy but
2: brownies do in general
1: Yeah, well, the aftertaste is a little earthy mm-hmm. <laughs> but i'd still eat it
2: i'll eat yeah, it i'm, I'm okay with this. yeah i'm
1: okay with it
2: yeah i'm okay with this so this, this is from I, someone who hasn't had bread in over two weeks so of course i'm <laughs> digging this <laughs> well okay then i'll put the, i'll
0: make a note to myself to put the i'll, I'll share the recipe then on the That's show notes. i like it mm-hmm. um Mm. it's like with the it's chocolate avocado on top. um applesauce and it does it's not vegan it's got eggs but it's made with coconut flour instead of regular flour mm. um um cocoa powder and there's not a whole lot else so no, hey, that's i good. like it mm-hmm. that's pretty good mm-hmm. i'm impressed all
2: right. all right it will definitely satisfy that chocolate craving just mm-hmm. throw a little pot in there and be <laughs> <laughs>
0: it would make it better <laughs>
1: mm. all right well good success good job all do right. we have any more i um, don't think so okay other we got some i mean i don't really have okay anyway yes let's, let's start the show <laughs> let's start Wait. the show start the show am i going for You tomorrow? start mm-hmm. you're first today so <laughs> you know may 2019 We were in Nashville Mm. at PODX. Mm. Yay! It was the first, oh my gosh, it was the first podcast conference that we had ever gone to. We Mm -hmm. went thanks to the encouragement from our friend Jenna, who's Mm -hmm. like, y'all should be fucking doing conferences. And we're like, really? And she's like, yes. And we're like, okay. And that was (laughs) the first podcast uh, conference that we had like went to. We all went as a big group uh and i did uh my story on <laughs> the pentecostal snakes and marlea did hers oh, on bigfoot and oh, what was her name oh uh uh, uh,
0: l- uh l- lorraine. Ah, um, oh my god lorraine yes why do i want to say almost Raleigh? said bobbit <laughs> i almost bobbit. did too lorraine oh. bobbit and the bigfoot <laughs> Right? We need to write that story though.
1: <laughs> Lorraine, part. Lorraine, the <laughs> ghost hunter. Yes, Lorraine of the
2: ghost. Warren. Hunt. Yes, Warren. Warren.
1: Warren. There we mm-hmm. go. we would remember it between the three of us because I didn't write it down. Ed
2: and Lorraine Warren. <laughs> yes, correct.
1: And, and we had a great audience. Uh, we met mm-hmm. Jeff, our friend from mm-hmm. Nashville. And um, it was just a fantastic time. We met so many people uh, oh and Heather mm-hmm. and Heather, and it was so positive. And it was just like a really good time. and it like really gave us a confidence. it gave me a confidence boost for sure, mm-hmm. um, me too, with the podcast. But the story that I did on snake handling was inspired by this bitter Southerner story called "The Pentecostal Serpent" by Asher Albine. Yes, learned how to pronounce his last name, (laughs) Asher Albine, and uh, it was it was a great article. Um, I talked about Jamie Coots. It was also the same talk that i gave where i was writing notes beforehand and my husband <laughs> was watching me and i wrote down jed got bit cody got was, bit <laughs> he was highly <laughs> questioning uh how this podcasting <laughs> thing was gonna go with me <laughs> he was very supportive but he had his doubts <laughs> and so we still joke about jed got bit uh, <laughs> writing that down in my notes and uh and it was, you know, anyway, it was a good, it was a good story. Had a lot of fun. Loved it. This is going to be the snake handling part two, because back in Ooh. November, Alabama snake came out on Ooh, HBO. Yeah. And this is the story of Glenn Summerford and the church of God with signs following. And <laughs> I, I watched the. And, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the HBO interpretation of the, the stuff, but I, you know, I watched the movie, I read a couple articles, I'm using an article from the salon.com who kind of reviewed the movie Alabama Snake, but a lot of my information that I'm going to talk about came from Greg uh, Polson and uh, Vanessa Richardson that does the Colts podcast. Mm. which is really, have you listened to the cults podcast? No, I don't think so. So they cover all the cults and it's really interesting. However, it's like their style of podcasting is very dry. Mm -hmm. It's total script. It's very, not much. uh, It's not very Southerner, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's not much inflection. It's very much like in the style of lore, where they're Mm -hmm. just talking and narrating their script, telling about the thing, and it's very, like I said, very factual. One thing I do kind of like, although it feels more like a, it feels more like an elementary school uh, audio book sometimes, Mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, Greg will tell the narrative, and then Vanessa will chime in, with the psychology behind some of the stuff with you know whoever's in the cult and stuff so it's very interesting factually cool. that way mm-hmm. like, you know listening but listening to it sometimes is kind of hard because mm-hmm. it it's pretty it's very dry mm-hmm. so listen to um, their detailed uh, podcast on uh, Glenn Summerford. And they used all of the research, came from Salvation on Sand Mountain by Dennis Covington uh, and mm-hmm, Serpent in the mm-hmm. Spirit by Thomas Burton, which are two books written about um, Glenn Summerford
2: and uh, what happened. I'm all right. from Sand Mountain, by the way.
1: And yes. And so Courtney that is... That is
2: where this is all happening. Yes. Um, I'm pretty sure I went to one of the churches in that book, but mm-hmm. I cannot... <laughs> I was too young to be able to tell you for sure what they were doing and they were the snakes. Right. <laughs>
1: well, I learned actually a lot more from the Colts podcast than I did from Alabama Snake. Alabama Snake mm-hmm. was very HBO-ish
2: mm-hmm. um, in their yeah,
1: presentation. I agree. And, um, and it, it left out a lot of facts and it had more hearsay or vague remembering. And I'll talk about that after I finish, like going through this also would like to point out that mark mansons the subtle art of not giving a fuck
2: yes! is a book
1: that i am definitely would refer to many people in the, <laughs> in this uh story needs to read and memorize because a lot of things could have been definitely um moved forward and avoided
2: if they would have read that book. And <laughs> on where their fucks should be given, right? Because exactly. I read that last year and it was what saved me in 2020. I'm not even gonna mm. lie. I'm telling you. It's says, a good book. Um, so. it's
1: I have a good fucks book. to give,
2: just not for this. Just not mm-hmm. yeah, then they somewhere okay.
1: else. <laughs> well, we can we can determine where their fucks should not be given throughout the story here. <laughs> so Glenn Summerford, um, who was the head of the church of God with the signs following in 1981 through night through, I mean, 18. Oh, I'm sorry. 1981 (laughs) through 1992 is when he was the head of this church. He was born in Jackson County, Alabama, and that's West of Huntsville, Huntsville, uh, Northern Alabama part where Courtney's from. And, uh, They say that his parents are Cherokee, and they leave it pretty vague. I don't know if they're 100% Cherokee, uh, part Cherokee, but anyway, it is said his parents are Cherokee. He was born in 1945, and before he was even born, however, his dad left, his parents separated, and so growing up from baby forward, his mom had this irrational fear that her ex-husband Glenn's dad would come and take Glenn like, and just, you know, she would lose him over a custody battle because her first husband did that to her daughter. And so she was so scared that was going to happen with Glenn. And so she spent most of um, the really early Glenn's really young age going from state to state like she was on the run so that his father couldn't find him. And because of this uh, Glenn grew up with a lot of instability and uh, they also had a lot of instability in their income because you can't hold down a job, you know, a good job for just a few, you know, a week, a couple of months or whatever. And so they had to like really, you know, scrape for money and for food And then she would get very paranoid and drop Glenn off at a relative's house. And then she would abandon him Mm -hmm. there thinking that the father was coming for her. It doesn't really like in any of the stuff that I've read, it doesn't really go into like why she thought this, if she was having mental problems or something that was going on there. Um, but you know this was the childhood that glenn grew up with and this also made him you know he had abandonment issues early on, uh, constantly, you know, no stability in his life. And school was not really a big priority. But when he would go to school, he was socially awkward. He was very introverted, probably because he wasn't learning the things that he needed to learn at that age. And so students at the school would pick on him and bully him. He had no friends. Uh, He was bullied and beat up by the kids at school. Uh, He was bullied and beat up by his cousins. He really had nobody in his life. And he became pretty scrappy. I mean, he tried to defend himself, but a lot of times he would just, you know, get the shit kicked out of him. In 1952, when Glenn was seven, his mom remarried and his stepdad was in special forces. And he became like a very strong male figure in Glenn's life. And he's like, you need to stop getting the shit kicked out of you. I'm going to teach you how to fight. You need to fight back. And so whether good or bad, you know, Glenn's stepdad became central in his life, showed him how to fight. Uh, They basically became best friends, took him fishing, hunting, when they worked on cars, uh, you know, side jobs, he always took Glenn with him. And, you know, of course, all of this is happening. He would go to school sometimes education school was just not important to them. And I don't think they had the system that we have now where uh, you get in trouble if you don't send your kids to school, if you're in the public school system. Um, so, you know, all of this happened pretty young in Glenn's life. He learned how to fight. He started like kicking the shit out of people in school, got kicked out of school, um, you know, was getting into trouble that way because of all these things that the stepdad was teaching him. When he was 15, he got tired of school and everything. and He moved to Chicago because one thing that he could do was fight. So he went to Chicago, started uh, participating, competing in these illicit boxing matches up there against men way older than him. He had no money. Nobody was coaching him. He was doing okay, but I still have a feeling he was probably like hit a lot. Like he lost a lot. And while he was up there, his aunt said, oh, you know, your birth dad happens to live in Illinois as well. And so in 1960, he got to meet his birth dad and he was very skeptical of the man because of all of the stuff his mom had told him growing up about, you know, how he was, Uh, stepdad was going to take him away from her. And, you know, she was scared of him and whatnot. But when he met his dad, his dad was like a very open and generous and happy person. Hmm. Uh, He was so glad to see Glenn. He was, you know, asking him, what can I do for you? Do you need a place to stay? And Glenn was still a little, you know, skeptical of the whole situation. Uh, and he was like, "No, I, I've, I've got it under control." And I mean, he's 15 at the time. So if you can think about like what you were like at 15 mm-hmm. and having to handle, you know, these kind of situations, he's already living on his own. He's fighting in like this really kind of seedy, uh, uh, illegal boxing environment. Anyway. it wasn't working out in chicago he didn't want to live with his dad he still wanted to like do his own thing so he ended up moving to florida working a bunch of part-time jobs and after about a year you know he was getting frustrated when he was in florida he was also fighting and you know he was trying to build up a professional boxing career and that just wasn't going i mean because when you do any kind of sports, you have to have like training and you have to have time and money to do it. And he really didn't have any of those things. So he's got really frustrated because things weren't progressing as fast as he wanted them to go. And he didn't feel like at 15 or 16, he was being taken seriously, which of course he wasn't being taken seriously because he was just Mm -hmm. the kid, you know? So he decided to move back to Illinois and live with his dad and his stepmom. And they're like, okay, if this is what you want to do, we're going to, you know, set you up with a coach. And we're going to work to make you a professional boxer or a professional fighter. And Dang. while he was doing this, I'm, I don't know, <laughs> like, you know, between 16 and 18, he, you know, one year he fought like 30 fights. So he was lining up his fights. He was becoming, you know, known in the field. And he did, uh, he went and participated in this event that was put on by local gangsters in the area when he was 18. And he fought three people and won and actually (laughs) won the whole event at 18 that these gangsters put on. However, before he could like get the credit and put it on his resume or, or however that goes, Uh, And it being gangsters, a gang fight broke out. Uh, Everybody, you know, freaked out. And it was mass confusion. He had already had his prize money. um, And he was, you know, he should have just like taken his prize money and left. But, um, you know, he had his prize money. And like somebody like shot a gun. It was all this confusion. Everybody's beating the shit out of everybody else. And the guys that he beat in the ring found him and they all ganged up on him and they beat the shit out of and him shit. and they took his money and he ended up with a cracked skull. And so uh, he came home actually he went to the hospital and the doctor's like, look, you've got a cracked skull. He's like, you cannot fight anymore. It's like if, if you fight anymore, you've run the risk of going into a coma. Like it could be like really bad for you if you fight anymore. So that was like everything that he had lived for up until this point. Everything that he worked for, trained for at eighteen is like all of his dreams of like his adulthood just like went out the window. And so the only person he told was his uh, father, and you know. He came back to, and I'm not sure exact, I think he came back maybe to Alabama, Florida, or Alabama, maybe Florida. He came back down south, though. Uh, and all he wanted to do was fight. I mean, like I said, that was his life. One of the things uh, that they talked about in the cult podcast, uh, because they're given the psychology of a lot of things that happened to Glenn in his childhood, which is really interesting. So they said that, you know, mm-hmm. fighting, Uh, For people who have anger issues like Taekwondo, karate, anything like that is actually very healthy for them because it gives them um, an outlet and it doesn't like make them more angry. It actually like as a release valve for it, it helps them mentally And, and we all know that like exercise is a huge mental health booster and so all of a sudden that is cut out of his life. And so he's like, okay, what am I going to do now that, you know, I can't fight? So 1964, he's 19 years old. He's doing a bunch of, you know, part-time jobs and whatnot. And he meets this uh, woman or this girl really named Doris Holcomb. Holcomb. And they fall in love. He marries her. He settles down. And, And that's pretty much what his dad told him. He's like, look, you just, you know, you need to settle down, find somebody. And that's what he did. And they move um, he's living in Scottsboro, Alabama, and they move to Florida. And in Florida, he gets work on a dairy farm. And then he starts fighting again because he just can't stop because he's young and dumb, and that's what he like felt like his life was meant to do was to fight. Um, and that's all he's ever known. So he's, you know, throwing these you know amateur fights in Florida and in the next year, 1965, he gets beat up pretty bad and he has a punctured lung, um, or like a rib broken, like went into his lung or something. And he comes home and of course he hasn't been telling his wife Doris that he's been fighting again. He told her, you know, a cow kicked me in the ribs and punctured my lung. And so he's laying on the couch that night and it gets really bad because his lungs are literally filling up with blood. So they take him to the hospital and the doctor says, you have three days to live. It's like, you're not going to survive this. So you need to just you know, go home and say goodbye to everybody um, pretty much. And so they took him home. He's sitting there. Doris's family comes over and they pray over him and he prays and three days go by and then four days and then five and Mm -hmm. he's still alive Mm -hmm. and he's actually getting a little bit better. And then seven days go by and he's, he's able to get up and, and move around and he finally, you know, he goes back to the doctor and they're like, it's really strange, like we've never seen this before. Um, and he attributes it to, you know, the family praying over, you know, Doris and her family praying over him. So he's going to straighten out his life. He's going to be loyal to Doris. He's going to make sure, he, ha- you know, their family always has food. And about this time, Doris is pregnant. But, of course, Glenn could not stop fighting. And he's still he's still fighting. It brings a little extra money. Um, he's still providing for his family. He, him and his, his cousins are from Alabama. So his cousin said, hey, there is this place uh, where they're holding this fight in Alabama. You need to come up. And so they go to this place that the person said where the fights were going to be. Of course, this is all illegal. Um, where these fights are going to be held. So they go there and they walk into this big empty building and nobody was there. And they're like, you know, what's going on? So they leave and they go down to the gas station and they run into the law there. And apparently somebody has had like seen them go into this building and thought that they were trespassing, which they were, um, And so he actually got arrested for just going and looking in the building. They didn't steal anything that I know of. Uh, So because of his past record of being in fights like assaults um, and all of this that has to do with his illegal boxing career, basically, he gets 18 months in prison Mm -hmm. and, you know, his wife is pregnant. Um, He's already told her that he wasn't fighting. So kind of a, come to Jesus moment on actually what's going on in his life and in prison he's fighting for cigarettes and money and there and Doris finds out about it and she tells you know the warden or whatever you know he needs to stop her husband from fighting and you know earning money this way and so ends up he, he stops fighting in prison everything's okay he gets out after 12 months in 1968 and then he works like construction, mechanics, warehouse, and he's still fighting for money for his family. So, education is important. You know, <laughs> um, he has three more kids with Doris, and in 1972, um, in during one of his fights, he gets they they're living in Alabama now. That he gets a little lippy. With one of the guys that he's fighting, he, you know, he's psyching him out. Is really what he's done, but I think he like did it very well because this guy gets totally pissed, and because this guy's totally pissed, Glenn like lays the guy out. But the guy is pissed off about it, so he wants revenge, right? So this is where the subtle art of not giving a fuck, these, <laughs> are, you know. There's there's a, a revenge theme that is pretty like strong throughout this whole series. And you know, just knowing like Hatfield and McCoy's like there's a very strong revenge theme in rural America, period. Mm-hmm. Um so y'all, subtle art, not giving a fuck. <laughs> right. Um so a week later. He was at home with his wife and his kids uh, and he smells fire and somebody oh, had caught his house on fire mm. and it went up like that. Like it went up really quick and he barely had time to get his wife out and um, his kids. And he thought he had gotten every, everybody out, but his 18th month old daughter was in there and He went back in to get her and like the roof fell. Like it was too hot. She was probably already deceased at this point. And that was just really the straw that broke the camel's back as far as Glenn is concerned. Because the week previously, he lost his sister in a car wreck three days earlier. His grandmother had died. And then he just lost his little girl to, um, to a fire. So he felt overcome, overwhelmed. He felt powerless. He had lost everything. They never figured out how the fire started. But again, in his mind, it was that guy. It was revenge. And he was mad. And he was going basically to go find that guy and kill him. But his stepfather stepped in and he was like, you know, you cannot give life back if you go and take a life. It's like there is no point in having revenge. Here's this book, the subtle art of not. Giving <laughs> I know, like this is really hard, but you know, um, it's not going to be good for anybody um, if you go out and get revenge. And then the next week, his stepfather dies of a heart attack. Ugh. So it's about as bad as you can get. Glenn focuses on, you know, focuses on his children. Uh, The relationship between him and Doris pretty much falls apart at this point. Uh, And they separate in 1974 when he's 29 years old. And this is where he starts, you know, living recklessly. He's got a death wish. He starts boxing really heavily, fighting a lot, And in 1975, after, um, I don't know if they've divorced or not. It's like neither here or there. Their relationship's over with. He meets uh, Darlene at a bar. Well, Darlene had lost custody of her two-year-old because she was uh, doing sex work and I think probably drinking very heavily. And they met in a bar and uh, they were, you know, he fell in love with her. He like, you know, for whatever reason they clicked and they were good for each other. So he marries Darlene and their marriage becomes stabilized and they live in New Hope, Alabama now. Do you know where New Hope is? I don't know where New Hope is. Courtney? No, I don't don't either. And so I'm not sure. So he's, he's living in this town with his new bride. Um, and trying to you know make a go of it and he ends up one of his friends uh is dating I don't know it's really complicated y'all one of his friends (laughs) ex like is dating this woman whose ex-husband is out to get her It's, it's just all the drama small town drama so much drama that you know about that happens like all the time um And so, you know, that thing, so they're sending people over to, like, beat up the ex-wife. And Glenn, being, like, a professional fighter and a person that loves to fight, comes over and pretty much sends everybody packing. And the news gets around town. And he sort of becomes, like, famous for, like, being the hero and standing up to these thugs that came over and, you know, was trying to beat up this woman and but in and of itself he kind of becomes a thug because people start hiring him to like protect them and then to go after people's like you know um for whatever reason and he gets arrested a lot he's never really i don't think he does much time if any um but he does get arrested for assault um during kind of this new thug for hire thing that he has going on in a uh, new hope here and. Um, I mean, he even, like, he fought police and, you know, didn't, like, die or get arrested. So we kind of know how that goes. Mm -hmm. Darlene is uh, pregnant. She's, like, 10 years younger than him. So at 22, she's pregnant with their first child. And they're like, you know, you got to get out of the thug business. We need to try to settle down. Let's, you know, try to be responsible and go to church. But he's made all of these enemies. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he meets this guy, one of these guys that he either beats up for his thug job or something, he runs across him again, his name's Jimmy Brown, and Jimmy Brown's like, I guess he reaches out to him, and he's like, I need to like make amends with you would you pray with me and you know Darlene and Glenn are trying to settle down he's like okay sure so he put he prays with Jimmy and everything kind of like calms down and he feels a sense of peace and he's thinking well maybe this is the road I need to go down and so he starts attending church more, however, he can't read the Bible, like you know, because education, right? Mm-hmm. But he wants to learn the Bible. So he prays to God, please God, let me read your words, basically. And in order to do this, he does a thirty day fast without food or water, which I'm gonna call bullshit on because yeah, no, like no. after three days without water, right? Yeah,
2: that can't happen,
1: yeah. But anyway, he, you know, this is part of the story and, and, you know, these books and this podcast, it is a story, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I, it's very much a uh, glossed over version, I would think of what actually is happening, um, So he prays and fasts for 30 days and comes out a changed man. He is confident. He's in command, but he still doesn't understand the Bible. And so he prays again to God and God, but God actually, the first time God actually spoke to him and I don't really know what God said, but God probably told him to drink some water, damn it. <laughs> and so he prays he goes on this other fast because he still doesn't understand the bible and he's like he really wants to know what god has to say to him in the bible he wants to know, you know the. you bible. can do a lot of reading lessons in 30 days cover like, to cover. You, can... <laughs> you know you could you could and and maybe that's what happened but the whole mystique thing yeah is that all of a sudden he like appears from his second fast and god has told him the bible cover to cover mm-hmm And so he joins the small Bible group, him and um, Darlene. And this Bible group happens to be run by this faith healer named Brother York. And Brother York is famous for healing people with chronic pain. If you have arthritis, he's going to lay his hands on you and heal you and you will not feel... (laughs) you will not feel pain if you have back
2: problems he's gonna lay his hands (laughs) on your courtney phone number website he will like
1: infuse (laughs) you with the spirit and it will take away your pain yes it's like the divine touch was like his trademark and so when he was given his you know speech or sermon or whatever brother york Glenn was feeling nothing you know Glenn was talking about all of this feeling with the spirit you'll feel it it will relieve you and Glenn's like yeah I I feel nothing and so he goes up like they're at church one or whatever they call it I guess church one night and he goes up to father uh, father York for brother York and he touches York and as soon as Glenn touches York is such a great okay soon as glenn touches york york like collapses and starts speaking in tongues and yes and <laughs> spasming and just doing like all the things that you see in all the movies that stereotypes like the speaking in tongues and the holy spirit and pentecostal you know whatever so creepy and- it's so creepy to see <laughs> oh yes yes and so brother york is doing all this in front of everybody and glenn reaches over and grabs his hand and he starts praying over brother york and casting the devil out of brother york and all of a sudden brother york is mysteriously okay hmm. and so like all of this happened in front of the congregation. And it really, you know, it made Glenn think that, hey, that's cool. I have superpowers. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe this is the thing I should be doing. So Glenn starts doing faith healing and it's kind of like, they compare like faith healing and a magic show and like this whole thing. And Mm -hmm. it's very interesting. They say that, you know, what brother York was doing is he was priming his audience and telling them what they were about to see Mm -hmm. and then repeating it over and over again. And then they do something very dramatic, like speaking tongues and have seizures, fake seizures. And then all of a sudden it's like, look, did you see it? Look over Mm -hmm. here. You saw it. Didn't you, it happened, you know, is, and they're talking about the psychology of this. It's like, you know, the mind, they condition the mind to see it. And the mind is a powerful thing. And sometimes mm-hmm. the mind will see the things. But it is also, if you don't see it, it's a lot of heavy gaslighting. Yeah. Saying, well, I guess you just aren't special.
0: You don't have enough faith. You don't have you don't the, have the spirit.
1: Faith. You God's not talking to you. Mm-hmm. So try harder next time. Mm-hmm. So after he did this, he felt cleansed and, you know, he's 33 years old, he decided that he's going to stop bar hopping, he's going to start fighting, and he spends all of his time now going to church, he prays, like he has a rigid uh, schedule of praying and fasting, And they talk about, like, you know, with the fasting and even with like where people um, harm themselves, like flagellation, you Mm -hmm. know, in the church, how suffering brings you closer to God. And they talk about all that, which is very interesting. Look that up if you want to know more about that, if you don't already. So snakes have not been brought into the story yet until 1979. So he's praying every day. It is now like his job to pray and go to church um, and, and do this. And one morning he wakes up really early. He goes outside and he sees a copperhead. He found a snake. And he... He remembers the verse regarding snakes, which is like the gospel of Mark, which is like what everybody goes by who takes up snakes. They use that, that verse. I'm not going to repeat it because I don't have it written down. and I don't know it by heart, Um, but he remembers that. He's like, maybe this is a sign from God, you know, maybe, maybe God is teaching him to faith heal. And now this is like the next level. So he prayed over the snake and of course, he heard God's voice and God was offering him protection and God told him to pick up that snake and that snake would not hurt him if he picked him up. So he picked up the snake and he's holding the snake and then Darlene comes out with a shovel and she's like, I'm going to pick the <laughs> snake, right? What do you doing? Um Put the snake down. I'm going to chop his head off. And Darlene says, according to the book, uh, that, she came up and she saw the snake and she immediately put down the shovel and she heard the voice of God too. Hmm. And God was talking to her to take up the snake and hold it. And so it was like this miraculous thing happened between Glenn and Darlene uh, with the snake and they felt like peaceful and, um, you know, God was speaking through them and and all the things, right? So it became a regular thing. They start looking for more snakes. Him and Darlene, they start picking up snakes and dancing. It becomes like a date night thing. It's like they tuck, <laughs> the, they tuck the children into bed, and at night they sneak out back to where they got the snakes hidden. And they practiced picking up the snakes and dancing and speaking in tongues and, you know, and then they would put snakes back and they'd go back to bed and, you know, just have their regular day. Jesus. The snakes became like pets to them. And uh, people who deal with snakes say that, you know, snakes do recognize people like they do recognize people as owners and that they do actually don't mind being handled, and they start to associate certain people with food, and if, like, that person keeps coming, they're going to recognize that person, and actually go to that person, just like a dog or a cat would, and expect to be fed, and so it's not surprising that, you know, when they're doing this, you know, they don't get bit when they, they're starting to, like, Tame these snakes, I guess you would say. Um, Darlene and Glenn joined this church. I think it's like the church, uh, the Mink Creek Holiness Church or something like that. And he was promoted to assistant pastor. And this pastor uh, of this church saw when he cast the devil out of Brother York. And he was really excited to have Glenn there as his assistant pastor and you know because glenn had became a little bit famous for becoming you know a faith healer he supposedly healed the broken jaw of this lady's son who was in a car accident um, by just again placing his hands and praying real hard and uh you know a lot of people saw that and started putting their you know faith in glenn and so this pastor pastor hazewell uh was really excited to have him because he was drawing in people into the church well hazel died and all of a sudden glenn became pastor and uh started making like these changes that didn't sit well with a lot of people So this is like (laughs) snake related changes (laughs) no actually this is very interesting yeah that happened but this is very interesting um because usually in these stories, you're like, okay, guy grew up with like snake handling people around him in his life, and he just like took it up, and kind of that's kind of like um, the coot story. Uh, but it was really he stumbled upon it himself. He didn't have anybody around him. And then all of a sudden, he becomes pastor because he kind of inherited this church from this guy who, you know, was using him basically to bring people in and one of the first things that he did was they had segregated sermons, so they would give black sermons during part of the day in a different area of the church, and then they would give white sermons in a different area of the church at a different part of the day. Well, he was like, that's bullshit, and he integrated the services, and he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, it's God's word. Everybody should hear it. There's no reason why we should be doing black and white services. Everybody should be there for the word of God. Of course, that, I know, that did not fly. That did not fly. I just want to tell you, that
2: did not fly. Was he still in New Hope? (laughs) Because that wasn't happening on Sand Mountain. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I think he was in the area. I don't think that was New hope. hope. I did look up. It's between Gunnersville and Huntsville, so it's just yeah. Near it's
1: still it's still in the area, but I'm not exactly sure where this this uh, church was. Okay. So the elders were pissed off first of all because here comes this young punk who all of a sudden was assistant pastor, and then he became pastor, pastor, and then he was got rid of like segregation, and they're like, whoa. And a lot of people got really upset, but Glenn stuck to his guns and he says, no, this is how it's going to be. So a lot of people left the church and then the racists came and burned the church down. Mm. So the church got burned down, but Glenn was like, you know, that's cool. That's cool. We'll just start our own church. They can go their way. We'll go our way. They rented some land in Scottsboro. And uh, started to build a new church because Glenn had these grandiose ideas of like having this new power church where everybody would come in. it would be like, you know, hundreds and thousands of worshipers. And this was like his mission to have like a big mega church, basically. So they rented land to start this new church. Uh, They started doing services out of this little building near that land. And he was preaching the gospel of Mark on the first day, his first sermon after the big fire. He's preaching the gospel of Mark. He's talking about healing with the hands. He's talking about drinking poison. And then he's talking about handling of snakes and being the showman, he brings out a snake and everybody's like, Oh, you know, because this is the first time that it was not a snake handling church beforehand. Right. And so he's like, got like this you know we will you know survive we'll do better uh he makes like this really great sermon that's full of just fire and passion he takes the snake and he passes it to Darlene Darlene takes the snake and then she goes off and she passes it down the line and people are like oh fuck snake (laughs) 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 you know (laughs) but they pass it all down the line And it becomes like the first sermon at the church of God with signs following. And so taking up the snake, you know, he talks about the story of redemption. He talks about like his past, like, you know, he was a troubled youth and he really establishes credibility with the people there. He's like, you know, bad things have happened. It's going to be okay. You know, bad things have happened to me all my life. So he establishes this really strong credibility with the showmanship of the snake. Look, God's not letting the snake bite me. Look, I can drink poison. I get a little tummy ache, but I'm okay. You know, and it's just like this great show. And, you know, one of the things though, with him and Darlene, you know, having the snake date nights things is that he he gets like a sense of, the behavior of the snake. So he knows when snakes are agitated. He knows when um you know we don't really need to hold the snakes. And uh the snakes again, they recognize him as like their human contact. And so he's casting out devils. He's, you know, handling snakes, drinking poison, laying on the hands like the whole nine yards. Um you know, he had a couple of close calls uh, with this uh, poison because he was drinking strychnine. Jeez. Yeah. But strychnine in small doses, they used to use it as like a stimulant, like caffeine. However, oh God. if you drink...
0: How did the human race last as long as it has?
1: <laughs> large population. <I> know, right? <laughs> So, you know, he would convulse sometimes and, you know, his he got really bad one time, uh, drank too much because he would basically drink anything, like any poison that anybody would hold, like give him. Um, Supposedly he drank battery acid one time. Oh, my God. So, you know, one of these events that he drank the poison, he, you know, his arms got locked up. He called his wife and his wife didn't hear him and he couldn't move and so then he started to pray and the prayer relaxed him and therefore God healed him but it was probably more from just meditation of relaxation that released his muscles so he went from like 25 people to 50 people in the congregation more people kept hearing about him they wanted to see you know what was going on uh you know he had like a lot of um doubters and stuff and one of the doubters was this guy named JL Dell Dow and uh who was like a known wife beater and he you know he did he didn't like say hey you need to come you know change your life he just basically acknowledged the person and then say hey this is what we do you're welcome to come here but you don't have to it'll be okay if you don't you know this is just who we are and for whatever reason, because of the performance art that was going on in there, uh, people got addicted and then, you know, they stayed for the snakes, or they came for the snakes and they stayed and got sucked into, like, the pulpit, basically.
0: Come for The snakes stay for the poison
1: right yeah <laughs> uh and so jl the infamous mean ass wife beater uh stopped drinking and his wife says you know for the first time he's he's not mean anymore and you know all of this is going on he's like attracting more people Glenn's attracting more people he's ex- wanting to expand the ministry and they have services like five nights a week. He's packing the place. There's dancing. It's like, you know, going to the club basically, you know, dancing holding the snakes there's like a lot of religious fervor going on people disco balls, yeah disco balls people (laughs) are passionate with the holy spirit people try to like have passion offs like i'm more passionate than you oh that is legit too yeah it's like i can outdo my spasms you know (laughs) of the holy spirit you know so it's just like it's just like this thing that's just full of energy And and you know, you know, when you go out dancing and you're around people that are are like having a good time and that are like, you know, having a dance off, it's the total, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, anyway, so (laughs) it was a lot of fun. It attracted a lot of people and people (laughs) in this poor area gave everything that they had to him to keep the church going. Uh, and the snakes actually became very popular. It's like there was like snake fanboys. People would keep <laughs> pictures of their favorite snakes like in their really? back pocket or in their purse. Uh he actually <laughs> got his like, name is Chubby. <laughs> he actually <laughs> got like upwards of a hundred or more members to the church. Um, just from you know, his charm and his show and you know what he was preaching. And he He wasn't naturally, you know, growing up he was socially awkward. He didn't have any friends. He was very like gonna fight first kind of person. But over the course of the years in this uh, ministry like, over seven years, he really honed his charm. And they're like, you can learn charm. You can learn to address, like, you know, giving talks and do metaphors and stories and imagery and arm movements. Like, you, you can, you know, like, learn all the little tricks to attract people. And he was also very actively um, active with his participants so he made the people feel like they were god's chosen one that they were special and he would go through and talk and he would like you know wave your hands in the air like you just don't care and <laughs> if they didn't wave their hands then he would go up to the person and he would have like a little talk it there was no shame in it but he was you know say hey you know join <laughs> say us <"Hey."> say ho. <laughs> So it was a very happy time for him and Darlene. You know, Darlene 100% thought that God was working through Glenn. However, all good things must come to an end. Mm -hmm. So he's like working his ass off, preaching five nights a week, and, you know, trying to keep money flowing into this little church and for what i you know have read or or have seen it doesn't seem like he was milking the congregation so that he could buy cadillac it just seems like he was just trying to keep things going or maybe fund. you know he was trying to find his place big, big church
2: yeah his place in the hbo documentary the house they lived in he oh yeah. yeah it was like taking money
1: yeah he no no weather. it wasn't yeah. money to live on and for a lifestyle it was it was strictly money, I think because he wanted to build a mega church. Uh, however, in rural in the rural South, you cannot squeeze blood from turnips and people were yeah. giving everything that they could, but it just wasn't enough. and his dream, just like his boxing career was not happening fast enough for him. So he never stopped drinking during this time, but he didn't drink as much. But after things just weren't going the way he wanted them to go, he started drinking more and more and started getting into a depression. And then he started uh, becoming very abusive towards Darlene, and started beating Darlene, uh, verbally abusing her as well, and which put her into a depression, and she didn't want to hang around him anymore, and she was, you know, she started resenting the church and Glenn, because of this behavior that Glenn was, uh, you know, uh, doing and beating, I mean, he was beating her, he was becoming very abusive. And in his drunken depression and abusive uh, abusiveness, he started like accusing her of of lying to him because becoming paranoid and started making up things like she had done him wrong. And he was dreaming that God was telling him that, you know, his bed had been defiled. So all of these things are like, you know, boiling in his head. And I'm like, dude subtle art of giving the thoughts Mm -hmm. it's like you are in one of those loops that they talk about feedback loops you know Mm -hmm. you drink more because you think your wife's cheating on you and then you know it just just keeps looping right and so he gets very paranoid his preaching kind of takes a little bit of a dive he becomes paranoid on the pulpit um and he starts questioning parishioners like, about his wife, like, is his wife cheating on him or has she been with oh, anybody? And, he's, and they're like, well, there is kind of a rumor that there's this young snake handler. Oh that, you know, he's a little he's bit a, of an ass grabber <laughs> that, right uh, you know, came and visited. And then, you know, supposedly some snake handling was going on. <laughs> he handled his snake. <laughs> And of course of course, that was just that just set him off but even if she did have an affair which nobody i don't think they confirmed or denied it but even if she was i mean he was fucking beating her of course she's yeah. going to go somewhere else um to find comfort but why another snake arms and another <laughs> snake of a younger snake handler with younger snakes and you know and he's believing all this he's believing all of this stuff that his mind is coming up with and he's like well i must be right because i am chosen by god god is speaking through me all my parishioners are telling me that god is speaking through me so it must oh, be god. true and of course in Oof. true glenn tradition he starts planning revenge so one night he sees darlene taking some sleeping pills because she has insomnia and she happened to take four sleeping pills and he goes and just like wigs the shit out. And uh, he says, you're trying to commit suicide. She's like, no, I'm trying to sleep. And so he like sets up this whole like production of she's trying to commit suicide he woke up his son who was like I think 15 at the time their son and made him like a witness for this you know spectacle that he's fisting to create as far as like you know accusing her of committing suicide and then why are you trying to commit suicide or did you do something wrong so he's really setting the stage up he's actually like pulling one of his manipulations that he does in the church over on onto her and so she's like whatever he finally leaves her alone later that night the phone rings and wakes her up she gets up and goes to um you know get the phone glenn already picked it up and he's talking to somebody and he hangs it up he's like well guess who that was he's like that was your young snake handler and he just said that y'all were having an affair and she's like what and she was really confused uh because usually during the night, um, you know, before she goes to bed, Glenn's mother calls and they talk like every night. And she's like, that was probably um, his mother. But because Glenn answered it, he, uh, you know, used it as something else to hold over her and started beating her like really bad. So between October 2nd and October 5th, of 1991 things really escalate bad um when Glenn's beating Darlene after he says that that was your lover on the phone like fessing up well first of all that would never happen in real life Mm -hmm. right um their son had to pull him off of her and um and you know he cooled down a little bit after that and so the next day she wakes up, everything's kind of still chilled. Oh, oh and I got to say, Glenn was drunk during this time. He was like yeah. on a drinking binge. Uh, so the next day, uh, uh, JL, the guy who was like the mean ass wife beater, ironically enough, uh, was going to give them money because he would lend them money every once in a while to live off of. And so Darlene took uh, her son with him to go to JL's uh, business place to get money and so they go there martin goes gets a drink or marty i think it's his name goes and gets a drink and supposedly jl like confesses his love to darlene and kisses her right before uh marty comes back in and she's like what the fuck so she's like well if marty happens to say anything to his dad then i'm gonna get my ass kicked even more So she goes home. She tells Glenn, she's like, look, JL just kissed me. And um, he's like, of course, flies off the handle. And so he's like, come on, get in the car. They drive back over to JL's place. And um, while JL has his back turned, Glenn attacks him. And I think it was like threats of calling the law or whatever made Glenn stop. So he grabs Darlene um, and they get back in the car and uh, go back home. Glenn, like, they go to sleep. Darlene's asleep. Glenn wakes her up. He's drunk. He's screaming at her. He's got a shotgun. She runs out of the house. He's chasing her with a shotgun. Their son wakes up and he gets his hunting bow and uh, points it at his dad and is like, you need to just put that down. And so, uh, Glenn puts the shotgun down. The son puts the hunting bow down. Of course, he's like so upset because he doesn't know what's going on. Um, he doesn't know why he's having to like force with deathly violence, like his dad to stop pointing a shotgun at his mom. So the next day, everybody comes to fuck down. Next day, Darlene's like, Marty needs to get out of the fucking house because um, she doesn't know what's going to happen with Glenn. She needs to get out of the house too, but she doesn't. Uh, so her sister comes and picks up Marty. So, of course, this is like October 2nd, no, October 3rd or, or so forth. Um And it just escalates. He's drinking the whole time. He's not done. He hasn't forgotten about JL. He's really super drunk. He calls JL and he's ready to fight. He's like, meet me under this tree. I'm going to kick your ass. We're going to sell this like men. And of course, JL doesn't show up because he's smart. Um, However, Glenn's sons come and they try to like talk him out of getting into this fight. But Glenn wasn't listening. JL never showed His sons finally like give up. The only person is there is um, Darlene. And so they, you know, hop back in the car. And while he's like, he's wasted, he's driving drunk. He's in the car. They're driving over a river. And he's like, he's like, I know you can't swim. I am going to throw you over this bridge and nobody will ever find you. I'm just going to tell them that you ran off with somebody and no one would give a shit. So he's threatening her like, to pull off the side of the road and to throw her in the water, which terrifies her, because she can't swim. And then all of a sudden, she said, his demeanor kind of changes. And he's like, you know what, forget I said that. He's like, everything's cool. And so he just keeps driving. Um, And he goes, they go back home. And when they're home, the family calls. And, you know, basically, they you know, ask him to pray and to calm down, and um, he does for a little bit, but and then he starts verbally abusing her again, and he grabs the pistol, and he drags her um, out to the snake shack, and when he goes into the snake shack, he's like, you know, we're going to find out once and for all whether, you know, you cheated on me or not, or whether what you say is lies or not, You know, and he's just trial by snake, basically, the snake bites you, then you're the lying person that I'm making you out to be that I always thought you were. If they don't, then um, you know, everything's good. So, of course, when he goes in there, he starts banging on the cages to get the snakes pissed mm-hmm. off. And he like shakes them up and they're pissed off. He can tell she's like they're striking at the side of the box because they're so pissed off. And he you know, like Puts a, the pistol to her head, and he makes her put her hand in there. So she puts her hand in there. She immediately gets bitten. Um, she gets bitten on her thumb, and he's you know he sees it, and he's still not satisfied. Like she just didn't drop dead, which I mean she wouldn't have done. So he goes, okay. He's like, if you know, if you're really you know, he's like, you're lying to me. So he's just like in a, a just crazy right. So he goes, you need to go over there and pick up the biggest rattlesnake that we have. So there's like a five-foot rattlesnake over there. It's like, if you pick up that rattlesnake and he doesn't bite you, I'll let you live. So she goes over there and she picks up the rattlesnake and he doesn't bite her. And this pisses Glenn off that the snake didn't bite her. Um, But she is like really in serious pain from that thumb bite. She's been bitten by a rattlesnake before, but it didn't hurt like this pain is hurting her right now. So when they came back from the whole, like I'm gonna throw you in the river incident thing, he parked, he didn't park by the house, he parked down the road on the street because he didn't want any family coming by and saving her. And so he made her walk all the way down to where the parked car was, because again, he didn't want family like going to the house and them being there. And she was, like, really, like, the pain was increasing. She was getting dizzy. She was having spasms. She was, like, very thirsty. But they're, like, down there by the car. She eventually goes into spasms um, from the venom. Her muscles lock up where she's paralyzed and she can't move. And this asshole pees on her while she's down there. Damn. And so... It takes like a snake bite, I guess, from a rattlesnake takes anywhere between six to 48 hours before the person dies. So what he's trying, he's waiting this out. He's, he's wanting her to die. And she's just not automatically dying. And this was past six hours, I think, at this point. So they walk back up to the house. She crawls onto the porch and passes out. She wakes up on the porch the next morning. Um, Glenn, Makes her get in the car at this point. Her arm is like double in size and her hand is starting to turn black. He makes her get in the car and go to the store with him. He wants her to return videos to the video store while he goes into the grocery store, and so she does. And of course, he threatens her obviously with her life, which I mean, she should have just screamed from the highest mountain. I mean when she was there because what was he going to do right but she does exactly what he says they get back in the car he seems calm he says you know i'll take you to the hospital um let's just stop by the liquor store first and one of the things that um the podcasters was saying during this events when they were talking about this that abusers have four phases There's like the tension, like mounting up towards the abuse, the actual, the actual attack. Then there was remorse from the attack. And then there's like the honeymoon period. So she has been through all four of these phases before. So she kind of knows like what his MO is. And she's expecting that remorse from like, I'm going to take you to the hospital, just this one more stop. And then the honeymoon phase to kind of start in, but it doesn't really, that doesn't, that never happens. Um, He drove to the liquor store, goes back home. Of course he starts drinking. She's in extreme pain. At this point it's been 24 hours. Um, That night, uh, He examines her hand and he's kind of pissed off that she's not dead. And he's like, you're going to be dead in an hour. I know it just from, you know, looking at your wound here. And he's like, you know what I want you to do. I want you to write two letters. And she's like, I can barely stand up and focus. I need some water. And I think she gives, he gives her a little water so that she could do this but she's like, I'm not going to write anything for you. I can't. And so he puts a gun to her head. And so the first note that she barely be able to scratch is saying, is this note to her son saying, obey Glenn, do everything that he says. Uh, I'm going to make things right. Glenn was asleep when this happened and he knows nothing. And then the second letter is to her sister saying that uh, Darlene, she's like, I slept with your husband and I slept with Glenn's half brother, you know, so he's setting up her suicide note. And at this point she knew that she was just going to die. I mean, he he was just going to kill her. She was, she was going to die. Of course she didn't die after that hour and he's mad that she wasn't dead. So he goes back out, takes her back out to the shed by her hair. And he's got that five foot rattler out there and he starts beating the rattler like physically hitting the Rattler to piss it off. And then he told Darlene to stick her hand in there. And of course she is like, can barely stand up, you know, hands all swollen. Um, And she's just in so much pain. She's crying. And he's like, if you don't stick your hand in there, I'm gonna shove your face in there. And so she sticks her hand in there. Of course, the snake bites her immediately. And at that point she vomits and starts convulsing on the floor. Well, he drags her back into the house and he's basically sitting over her, waiting for her to die. And she's like, I, I gotta go to the bathroom. And he's like, go there. So she's like throwing up, vomiting, peeing, um, you know, using the restroom right there on the floor while he's waiting for her to die. And she doesn't die. And he like gets tired and he's drunk and he passes out, but before like he puts his head down, he's like. I've got the gun. He's like, if you move, I'm going to shoot you. And then he passes out. Well, Darlene at this point, uh, is able for, I mean, is able to stand up and go get some water. And then she calls her sister and her sister calls the ambulance and she's like, you get out of the house and you just start walking towards the road if you can. So she climbs out of the house. She starts walking down the road and that's where the ambulance comes and finds her and and picks her up and that's that's where the start of Alabama snake kind of starts Mm -hmm. off with the ambulance seeing um Darlene stumbling down the road uh she goes to the hospital and is given anti-villain I I mean obviously she lives anti-villain anti-venom what'd I say (laughs) you said (laughs) anti-villain it sounds like she needed anti-villain yeah she does need some anti-villain too Mm -hmm. oh yes Mm -hmm. anti-villain then the, the okay. <laughs> i'm gonna stop right there uh she lives uh she was in the hospital for four days the she tells what happened the police go to glenn's house and he's acting like nothing happened he's like what's going on why are y'all here i know nothing look i have these letters from my my wife died i think maybe i don't know <laughs> he gets charged with m- murder and um Hold on. Is that Luna? My dog's asleep. She's barking Oh my god! (laughs) Oh, that's so cute. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, that's all right. Glenn gets charged with murder and gets sentenced to 99 years, which is kind of crazy because there's a lot of... Murder or... Oh, uh, attempted murder. Thank you. Get charged with attempted murder uh, and gets sentenced to 99 years, which is even crazier because... He didn't murder her, first of all, there was attempt. And usually yeah. those kind of charges around here don't are not as heavy. You yeah. Know? So they think it was more because of the snake handling church angle that they were so harsh on him. At least that's what his kind of followers believed. But of course, his followers believe, you know, he is right hand of God. They they believe Glenn and not, you know, Darlene. They believe the rumors. Um, They believe that you know this was just God trying to tell everybody what a bad person she was,
0: because that's God. That's the business God always gets up to. Yeah, exactly. You You know, know, snakes
1: bitter. So like, there's poor people to worry about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who Darlene sleeps with? They just mm -hmm. top of God's list. All all the fucks God has to give about (laughs) who Darlene sleeps with. (laughs) (laughs) exactly one of the kind of crazy one of the um during like all the interviews of his parishioners one of his parishioners said that they firmly believed that god would open up the ground and smite all the wicked people who did this to poor glenn and that glenn would be free from jail and returned to the pulpit and that never happened Eventually,
0: the church people were at the Capitol on the 6th of January, too. I bet
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) nothing ever happened. Glenn goes to jail. A little excitement in Glenn's life in 2003. He kind of makes a break from a work detail that he was on and goes out on the lam and gets another 30 years added to his uh, (laughs) his time busted busted however uh he was like up for parole in June 2020 that got denied and he is supposed to go up for parole again in February uh next month tomorrow not tomorrow but... he had better not get fucking parole <laughs> And there's a good chance not. that he will probably spend the remaining years behind bars there at the Bullock County Correctional Facility in Alabama. So if you watched Alabama, uh, snake, they kind of build, mm. you know, they build this story and it's, and it's, it's a good story. It's interesting. It's little told. a little All of it's probably bullshit. All of it paints Glenn like in a really good light early on, um, you know, it's just a hardworking man trying to do best by his family, kind of stuff. Uh, the Alabama snake—it's—it's a little bit different because you know they're interviewing his son, they're interviewing mm-hmm. Doris and Darlene, which whew, Darlene yeah.
0: is strung out. Darlene
1: oh, is just unwell she she is not well and there's a lot of focus on more of the demon aspects of this and they even bring up like accusations of molestation and alcoholism Mm -hmm. but of of course we know alcoholism was very like prevalent throughout this whole thing um and it's just it's just crazy y'all uh and then the last i have problems with the alabama snake uh, hbo movie because of the way that they portray Glenn especially that last shot of Glenn the actor that plays Glenn um kind of rising above like elevating oh, and right. becoming like this out of that lake or something Yes, yeah, that was so like this holy savior mm-hmm. and I'm like what the fuck is this and then you look at a, a picture or interview of Glenn in jail and he's like 76 years old and he's like got no teeth and he just looked like an old man. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what yeah, they were trying to about prove. That.
0: that ending was very weird. I that, remember. Yeah, thinking, it was, I was disturbing. Like, I was like,
1: that's not what you, sh- that's not, that's not what we're getting from this. This is, you know, that's not what should be said about yeah. this towards the end. But that is my story of Glenn Summerford's crazy ass life and his Man. mean ass temperament that you know never changed. Huge. And the evil's so of alcohol. <laughs> Evil.
0: <laughs> Let's get another drink. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We will be fun. right back. <laughs> we'll after these messages. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna refill and then we will come back. Do you want more Strange South every week? We can help. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can join our Facebook fan group, Fans of the Strange South Podcast, to keep the chat going with our whole creepy community. Do you have a story idea for us or a story of your own to share? Email us at stories at Plus, if you join our Patreon, you not only help support the podcast, you get an exclusive bonus episode for every show and a discount on merch. You can find links to all of these things on our website, strangesouth.com along with photos, links, and show notes from every episode, Strange South t-shirts, mugs, and other goodies. See you there. The there Good
2: Place come. was one year ago. I think it was yesterday. That was the series finale. The finale? We had four mm-hmm. seasons, so it was 2016. I follow I these so uh, meme groups for The Good Place just to make my life better and
1: uh, they were we all need memes to make our life better let me tell you there's been some killer memes oh so many good memes 2021 memes have not disappointed Mm -mm. no they haven't
2: Mm -mm. we didn't talk about we haven't seen we haven't seen each other since we had time to celebrate for a day of hope
1: oh yeah yeah. we haven't we,
2: we haven't we didn't record we recorded.
1: We didn't record after the inauguration. We recorded no, we
2: recorded on the 17th, right yeah. before it. Mm-hmm. That's right. We had one day. Chad was already worrying before the day was over. And I was like, we gotta have one day, Chad. Just yeah. I told it. him I told him the same thing. I was like, today is
0: the day for rest.
2: Right. No <laughs> negativity,
0: positivity. Listen to
1: Andrea Gorman and take a breath. Take a breath. Yes. Right. We took the day off. We watched Mm TV, kept it on a loop. It was a good day. Yeah, it was a good
0: day. Also, I want
1: to give a real quick shout out to um, our Patreons. We got a new patron! Yay! Yay! Hi, hi uh, to Lou. Hi Lou, Lou. Uh, That's all I know. (laughs) Hi, (laughs) thank you. thank you I hope I'm saying your name right because you know it's me Patrice I say nothing right <laughs> it's me Patrice it's me Patrice. <laughs> it is me Patrice well because people get us they, they've like mixed up our faces and our voices you know so that's they think funny because that, I didn't realize yeah I didn't either who
0: was it that told you that somebody like I remember <laughs> I sw- I know right I know um, I know we just talked last week about how, if you don't, or two weeks ago, how, like, if people send us stuff on Instagram or Facebook Messenger, oh. we will immediately forget what they said. Oh, <laughs> so I know. if you have stories and we oh, want yes. them, we promise we really, really want them. If you have stories, send them if to stories, stories at I'm
1: sorry, say that again.
0: Oh, yes, if you have stories, send them by email <laughs> to stories at or the Strange Or that, no, wait, not even podcast. <laughs> <So hand up. laughs> shut up right. i do this wrong all the time try <laughs>
2: it <Not> again <laughs> the Take strange
0: Curry. south send your stories to stories at the
1: correct and yeah. we will use them we promise uh we are sitting on a couple that we haven't used yet because we don't see each other you know it's been really mm-hmm. lonely without my girls
2: Mm-hmm. I know. I really we saw you so from the much. car today.
1: <laughs> no. Yep.
2: You got held on trying to give you your drink today. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: <no. laughs> Come rain or shine or hell or snow. Courtney's yeah. <laughs> bartender Courtney's delivering the drinks. Okay, so um South
0: Carolina is where my story is. Oh. So yeah, cheers to the Chick-fil-A like person and the vaccine line. South Carolina. Yes. this is this is for you. Um, and it's been brought up by a friend of ours a while back, um, Noel, who used to be obsessed with this story. And, uh, it's one of those that I hadn't tackled earlier on because it's one that if you've ever done a ghost tour, um, around Myrtle beach or, or anywhere on the coast of South Carolina, you've likely heard this story. And, you know, I tend to shy away from the, the really big ones like that this one though this one's fun for me this is a story of alice flag so alice, it's who? alice flag flag okay mm-hmm. f-l-a-g-g so like i said you can't do like a ghost tour of the beach area in south carolina myrtle beach the grand strand they call it without hearing some version or other of the alice flag story and I got versions from uh, Strange Carolina's website, The Moonlit Road, which oh, I'm sure we've website. mentioned before, but mm-hmm. we love The Moonlit Road. Um, so if you've never hit it, go hit that one up. It's very cool. And a blog called The Dead Bell. Um, but the best telling that I've heard of this story is from The Moonlit Road. So I'll drop the the link in the show notes. And this version was written by uh, Kathy, Kathy Camerline and Craig Dominey as just like it's just their telling of this same story so anyway that's where all my sources are but the story basically goes in the 1830s there was this girl named Alice Flagg her mother her siblings and her oldest brother Um, he was a doctor his name was Allard which I guess was a really common name at the time because there were multiple people named Allard like buried right around there like a l l a r d never heard of it but um so dr allard flag they all live together at the hermitage and this is not like andrew jack's Hermitage. that's the name that always pops into my head it's like because that's the name of his plantation outside nashville this hermitage was then just the name of their their house their summer house in myrtle's inlet which is just south of myrtle beach south carolina so The hermitage is now the name of a gated community of multi-million dollar luxury homes in Merle's Inlet, um, which its website says, quote, will impress even the most wealthy. Oh, God. Um, So That's that's the area we're talking about. Um, So Alice, her father's name was Ebenezer. He died in 1838. And um, she was born in the early 30s. There were originally nine children in the family, but some had passed as toddlers and young children. And Alice was the only girl, and she was the youngest in the family. So the Flag family lived at the Hermitage at a certain time, and they owned a rice plantation called Watchesaw, which, <laughs> like the Hermitage, is now Watchesaw Plantation Private Country Club featuring golf, tennis, and fine dining, starting at the low, low price of $5,400 a year for one person. Except that that was 2016, so I'm sure it's much higher now. (laughs) Um, So, But you get the picture. So this was like a super affluent area all the way through back to the 1800s and still now. And um, uh, the folks that lived there are aristocratic wealthy folks. And there's evidence that they were a philanthropic family, generally, but it's still not a stretch to assume that they wanted alice to marry somebody who was on par with the family finances you know right um she's got to stay in all of her dresses she's exactly she's got to be kept in the manner to which she is accustomed so the story goes that when alice is 14 15 years old she leaves the plantation goes riding horseback riding of a day and she comes upon this group of lumbermen who are dealing with a felled tree in the road and it doesn't take very long before she's making googly eyes at one of these young men in the group his name is john braddock and um, some some of the stories call him a lumberjack or a lumberman some stories say that he was a traveling turpentine salesman which is much grosser really but I it, turpentine is distilled from tree resin. So it may not actually even be a contradiction could kind of be, there may be some kind truth,
1: of, right? Some connection.
0: Yeah. There may be a connection there. So um, anyway, she, she can't stop thinking about this John Braddock. She rides home. She's, you know, curled up with her pillow at night thinking about <laughs> this man. And then, and so she asks her mother and her brother, if he can call on her which is a huge huge mistake um because this is just common little mr lumber dude and uh they basically like laugh at her and she's 15 so she of course just like stomps her foot and storms off and slams her bedroom door <laughs> and starts plotting i'm sure like immediately on how she's gonna get around all this shit mm-hmm So she starts finding servants who are kind of amenable to this cause and like sending secret messages to John Braddock through servants. And then she starts setting secret meetings with John Braddock and they start getting more and more kind of entwined in their own little narrative of of this like relationship that they're going to have. So she starts to think, okay, well, maybe if the family gets to know him, then they'll come around and they'll agree to this relationship. So one day, John Braddock gets up the guts to stop by the house, and Brother Allard opens the door and sees this Lumberjohn standing on the stoop, and he's just, like, beside himself, enraged about it. So he basically sends him away, slams the door in his face, reads Alice the riot act, I don't ever want to see this guy here again, we told you what we think about this, this is a no-go, not considering this. He and mom have been looking for a proper husband for her all this time. They've been putting a lot of work into it. Here she is sabotaging all their hard work, slumming and it, and they're slumming it with this lumberjack <laughs> doing uh, like and and all this. I'm sure is better for brother Allard's pocketbook, anyways, to get to get her in with some some right? well-to-do man. And I swear, I'm reading this, and all I can think is the dominating like domineering older brother in bridgerton <laughs> just keep yes. i was like dude yes. what is yeah i know I was like what is your deal with your sister man? i know are like, you wanting to her marry go. her what's i like know that? so um so he's that's who i picture now every time like as i go through this story i just picture him in his little pompadour but um so of course you know he's told her absolutely not we've already got this you know we're dealing with this and of course again alice being 15 like he yells at her i'm sure she just yells back doubles down that's what my kid would do she just double down you never because knew what love true love was me. you don't know me this is <laughs> like the real thing
1: handler i know. <laughs>
0: So, you know, of course I'm sure there was more storming off and stomping and everything. So, she sets of course another secret meeting with John, and this time when he meets her, he's got a ring in his hand and it has an inscription on the inside that says love never fails, John. And so they they embark on this like secret engagement plot. So, you know, he's basically asked her to marry him. She said yes but she knows that her brother will absolutely flip his shit if she comes home with a ring on her finger. So she takes a ribbon out of her hair and runs it through the ring and ties it around her neck um, where it can hide under all her stuffy, uncomfortable, rich 1800s clothes. And um, so the people in the family start to notice that Alice is acting kind of different. Like I'm sure she's being a little less huffy and a little more you know, happy, snooty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you just kind of like, like, I know something you don't know. <laughs> um But, you know, so, but at this time, everybody else has had so much. Uh, they've had enough of her troublemaking and her trying to sneak off with this dude. And they're worried that he's still got some pull over her. Like, why is she all of a sudden gone nice on us? And um so they decide to send her away to boarding school in Charleston, which really, it's kind of shocking that she's not already away at boarding school in charleston because it's kind of what the rich families by the coast would do anyway um but you know the argument is kind of like okay well this can't happen we're sending you away forget about this guy so she goes and she has all these you know rich things that debutantes have at charleston schools so she's going to balls and she's joining social clubs and she's got suitors but she just has no interest in any of them and she's pining away for john braddock he's probably got
1: some major muscles being like a lumberjack you know (laughs) know, right it's like (laughs) it's not a bad choice i imagine surely you know he's good with his hands
0: i seriously <laughs> now, everybody's got Bridgerton on their mind. But uh so. Yes, I So, do. In, uh, I mean,
2: <laughs> so you know. She, only he she were kind of, a Duke and a lumberjack. Right. Like, a Duke and a lumberjack. <laughs> like the Duke of Hastings. <laughs> yes. He was
1: a fighter, right? He was a boxer. So yes. He was a boxer. Yeah.
0: Oh, it's our through line. <gasps> there's our through line what was it you know did I tell you already what? that like I was saying we made was, that through line I <laughs> know we created we always create our through lines though don't we we make those up <laughs> but, like, did I tell did I tell you when we talked about Bridgerton last time that I started I started like deciding how good something is by asking whether it's Duke of Hastings good
1: yes. <laughs> or, just, <laughs> or just regular good <laughs> that's but, a fair um, question
0: it mission. is i mean yeah, it's yeah. a totally different standard totally <laughs> so anyway so she's at school she's pining away for this kid um this lumber lumberjack and um you know she's she's a little bit depressed she's not getting into the whole school atmosphere and in january 1849 she starts coming down with a fever and you know we're in south carolina in the 1800s they called it country fever they call it malaria now so um the school notices she's starting to get sick. They send word to her brother who is a doctor. I think, I don't remember if I said that, but he is a doctor. Um, And I imagine it probably takes a few days, right? To get word to somebody. And so he gets the message and he immediately speeds four days to Charleston in a buggy to get his sister. When he gets there, she's so sick. It's one of those things you think about like, man, it really did take so long to get places. And when you're sick like that, it doesn't take long for you to start to go downhill right so you know it's probably been six days since the school reported that she was sick and by the time he gets to charleston she can hardly even like lift her head off the pillow to say well, hi. would they
1: not get like another doctor from charleston that's exactly it's exactly what a I legend. was thinking.
2: You know? okay. <laughs> it's a legend. <laughs> okay. Well, knowing the controlling brother of Bridgerton, he would have been like, no, no one. No one else may touch my, touch my sister.
0: Because it's only me.
2: Only I can touch my sister. If I touch my sister, it's going to be me. <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: <laughs> so he gets there. He collects Alice and he, he gets her on the carriage for the four day ride back to Merle's Inlet. And with, you know, the, the way that the story goes with all the jostling of the carriage, they're not, you know, paved roads like now. So it was a tough ride. Yeah. The, the, the long travel, the tough travel, her body is just completely worn out by the time she gets back to the hermitage and she's, she's getting to where she is barely responsive. The fever's not responding to anything. So as her brother is carrying her up the steps into the family house in Merle's Inlet, her hand in a fever just floats up to her neck and grabs onto this ribbon that's there. And, um, like a a comfort, like a a habitual movement that she makes. So Dr. Flag Allard lays her on the bed in one of the second floor bedrooms. And as he settles her onto the pillow, he sees that that ribbon has a ring on the end of it. And he realizes immediately what that is. And enraged, he grabs the ring and tears the ribbon free he opens the window and he like just hurls it out into the marshes behind the house. And um, Alice wakes up shortly after, she's frantically like reaching for this ribbon that's no longer around her, around her neck. And when she can't find it, she goes into kind of a panic and the stress of the separation and the fever and all of the mess that she's been through. Just she lapses into a coma and before long she dies in the hermitage house. So, the stories say that Alice is buried at all saints Episcopal church Waccamaw on Polly's Island, which is just South of Merle's Inlet. And, um, it's a, it's a barrier Island there. And the grave is only marked with the name Alice. There's no surname on it. And the story is that her brother wanted her forgotten because of her disgraceful behavior with this lumberjack that he would not allow her surname to be written on her stone. And, um, So there's this kind of mysterious flat gray slab in the ground in All Saints Episcopal Churchyard that just says Alice on it, which is very, very real. I mean, people visit there in droves every year. And um, of course, the same people say that Alice haunts the hermitage in Merle's Inlet and her grave in Polly's Island because she appears as a woman in wedding garb who is looking and asking everywhere for this ring that's missing. And so um, families who have owned the hermitage, because it became a private, after the flags um, kind of passed it down through a couple of generations, they ended up selling the house and it became a private residence. And um, some of the families that have lived there since the flags sold it have reported seeing a woman in white floating through the hallways of the house I saw an interview with a man who grew up in the house that, um, he used to have one of the second floor bedrooms. And he said, every time he walked through the hallway, his hairs would stand up on the back of his neck, um, and have like strange sensations when he was walking through there. And lots of people have reported seeing her in the graveyard and having strange things happen to their rings when they visit there. So, um, one of the people who has stories like that is our friend noel who was obsessed with this story when she was a kid and um, told me that i could share what happened to her um there's one of the legends that goes with the grave of alice is that you're supposed to if you walk backwards around alice's grave 13 times starting at the right bottom corner of the grave slab and ending at the letter a in alice then there are a couple versions of this, but one of them is like you leave a coin or a ring on the grave and she will come over the wall of the cemetery to see you. The other version is if you lay, I know, the other version is if you walk backwards 13 times around the gravestone and then you lay down there, then she will visit you or you'll have a wish granted. Those are the two versions of like that. Or you'll
2: be really dizzy. and Yeah, that's what she said. She's <laughs> like, people feel lightheaded
0: when they do this, but it's probably because they just walked around backwards yeah. 13 times. But um, so she and her brother and mother went to visit this site when she was young. And um, the grave? Mm-hmm, yeah, the okay, graveyard. At the church, at the, the and they did church. also go to her house. They did also go to the hermitage house after the hermitage. they went to the graveyard. So um, when Noel went there, with her and her little brother, they decided they were going to try this walking around the gravestone 13 times thing. And the version she knew was, um, that you, the one where you lay down in, in the, on the gravestone or right next to the gravestone after you walk around. So she was the first one to do it. She lay down, she didn't feel anything. Nothing was different. Um, and then her mom did it and she didn't notice anything right away either, but her brother who was four years old at the time, um, and really didn't get any of this except that you know the feeling you know the anticipation and stuff that everybody else is kind of feeling but you know so he did it and he's just having fun he walks around 13 times and she said that when he laid down on the ground he turned the color of that grave slab immediately because he jumped up and said mommy something's tugging on me and they had to get up and
1: leave. what no
0: And so as they were leaving the cemetery afterwards, her mom then looked down and noticed something. So her mom had been having these medical conditions that caused some swelling in her um, in her extremities. So her her fingers had swollen for a, a good little while and she had not been able to move or remove her wedding ring for a long time. And she looked down and realized that her wedding ring had been turned around on her finger so that the diamonds were facing inside to her palm. And she couldn't have done that on her own. What? So, and I've read other stories of people going to the grave and like they're, and having the same kind of situation of like their their fingers are swollen, but all of a sudden the ring is like basically flying off their finger when they leave the graveyard. Um, so like I said, Noelle didn't feel anything in the graveyard but then when they went to the house afterwards she said they were walking up the steps to the house and she felt a really, really cold sensation all of a sudden where she's like, it wasn't just a chill and it wasn't just the creep. She was like, it was a cold, cold feeling of not being right. And she's like, I couldn't tell if it was a pull or a push, but I could tell I was not supposed to be on those stairs right then. So she had those experiences. And um, yes, I know. So th- that was kind of cool. Those stories about yeah. Alice Flag's, um story, but you know, like I said, it's, it's a really popular one. It's been turned into a bunch of other stuff. Um, there was an opera written by a South Carolina resident, um, Joseph Kaz called Alice flag, which I started to listen to and then forgot I had put on YouTube and then went upstairs to do the laundry and freaked the shit out of my children who aren't used to hearing opera in my house. And it was on YouTube. (laughs) So the sound wasn't great. I walked back downstairs and they're like, Oh my God, ghosts. Um, (laughs) And here's the kicker and this is my favorite. So in 2017, Lifetime created an original movie that's kind oh, of based on the Alice no. Flag myth. Oh, no. It is called it is called Honeymoon from Hell and if you want to read it for $2 on YouTube, you can totally do it because I'm going to drop a link in the show notes and I watched it yesterday with my kid. It will give you a solid hour and a half of just snarky, like mystery science theater joy to watch oh, this movie. I guarantee. <laughs> Is
2: that how you got some of her attitude for your uh, telling yeah. of the story of yes, like, I'm totally. storming off and slamming my door?
0: No, that all came <laughs> from my experience with my 10 year old, actually. <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, well, I mean, of course, with myself, I know what I was
0: doing at 15. But oh, I just yeah.
2: <laughs> Maybe exactly. lifetime yeah. no,
0: the-, the, the lifetime interpretation has a lot more to do with the storyline they created around the myth than the myth itself. The synopsis of it is uh young newlyweds, Julia and rivers find themselves stranded at a coastal bed and breakfast during a dangerous hurricane. At first they try to make the best of it and get to know the other trapped travelers, but as events start to get odd and then suspicious, Julia begins to believe they're being haunted by a legendary ghost. Mm. And, uh, like i said honeymoon for me the true hell of that movie was the overenthusiastic bed and breakfast host played by the mom from seventh heaven who insists on leaning over all the guests to talk to them like all the time and makes them eat all their meals with her i was like that would be the reason why i would never ever visit a bed and breakfast ever again like i don't want that i don't want that lady this right. is not the experience that's honeymoon from hell i don't need a ghost oh, but yes. um yeah it's riotously stupid and it's super fun to watch so you should totally watch it
1: well all i gotta Um, say is to dr brother that alice did become famous and is still famous so you know you failed you
0: failed well and and here's the here's the kicker and i'm gonna pull i i told you i told you during our little break that i was gonna do this i'm pulling a patrice with the grave the guidestones thing if you, um, if you want to hear what's really true about the Alice story and what's not, then get on to Patreon and sign up because you'll get access to the After Talk where I'm going to go through a little bit more about the history of Alice Flag and tell you what's legit and what is
1: not. So there oh, you go. $3.
0: Welcome new patrons.
1: Woo! Woo-hoo! yes you also get courtney's yes. drink recipes i'm get around to putting them up
2: <laughs> uh, the cards the, the tri- cards, cards. cards yes mm-hmm. those are nice
1: well thanks everyone yes, for listening
2: are. to us we appreciate Thank you. you so
1: much for being episode 78? 78 78 we're gonna have to like do something maybe about 100 maybe about 100 we'll be together
0: oh lord i hope so let's make that a
1: goal okay
0: let's we need to write a note to god and joe biden to say (laughs) please can we have a party for episode 100 (laughs) please all right y'all will not handle snakes though will not handle snakes
2: (laughs) (laughs) bye y'all bye Bye.
0: We just talked last week about how, if you don't, or two weeks ago, how, like, if people send us stuff on Instagram or Facebook Messenger, oh. we will immediately forget what they said. Oh, <laughs> so
1: I know. if you
0: have stories and we oh, yes. want them, we promise we really, really want them. If you have stories, send and them if to stories, stories at the Strange South I'm
1: sorry, say that again.
0: Oh, yes, if you have stories, send them by email <laughs> to stories at or the Strange Or that, no, wait, not even podcast. <laughs> so hand up. Shut up. I do this wrong all the time.
2: (laughs) Try it (laughs) again. The Strange
0: South. Send your stories to stories at thestrangesouth.com.